0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark HelpsMeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Six long months since I delighted you with a guest host version of Bible Bash, and there have been some personnel changes in the interim. My long-time friend, Peterson Toscano, is no longer at the core of the project, but my more recent friend, Liam Hooper, is still there, and he'll introduce you to his new co-host, Don Durham. Some bibliophiles will likely experience it as bashing the Bible when a trans man like Liam starts reading the book with different eyes and hearts, but mostly what I hear is greater integrity and deeper vision and more room for those marginalized by mainstream fixations. I'll let Liam lead you through this rather than nattering on myself. Over to you, Liam.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to be with you here on Spirit in Action. I'm happy to present to you our first two sessions after we acquired a new co-host. So I'm anxious for your listeners to meet Don Durham, who's also from North Carolina and is bashing on the Bible with me. Hello and welcome I am Liam Hooper, a trans, queerish, practical mystic, theological activist, and grateful Jew by choice living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and this is the Bible Bash Podcast. If you've dropped in over the past year, you might be expecting to hear another voice following mine, and you will in a minute. But if you caught the last few episodes, you also know that other voice will not be Peterson. Peterson is now out gallivanting about in nature, embarking on a new life in South Africa. While we miss him, I think you are really going to like our new co-host. That said, thank you for joining us again. And now I'd like to introduce to you Don.
2: Hello, I'm Don Durham, a hermit-like, mendicant farmer and cantankerous curmudgeon. Dog and I live on a small farm in North Carolina where I grow food to give away, and he does whatever he wants to. And I also host a podcast about what people are doing to end hunger.
1: Yes, you do. That's a fine podcast, too. We will provide you all with links to that if you want to listen in. So, hello, Don. Welcome to your first official Bible Bash podcast.
2: Hey, Liam. Thanks, man. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here.
1: I'm excited for you to be here. What our listeners have probably assumed is that you and I know each other pretty well. We go back a few years, and I know things about you, some things I'm still <laughs> learning. But I know, for one, you're more than a farmer, that you are seminary-trained, you're ordained, and that you are, like me, a dog lover And you're into some pretty cool geeky hermit stuff like ham radio, like my dad. I'm (laughs) sure that I'm going to discover new things about you as our listeners get to know you. But I'm curious, you know, what would you like for Bible Bash folks to know about you today?
2: Indeed. Uh, Geeky stuff. Whiskey 4, Delta Whiskey Delta. That's my call sign. Or W4DWD, unless you prefer Morse code. (laughs) I like to make things. And that might mean welding or whittling or soldering or programming. Some of those things I've done for a long time, but some of them I've only begun to do more recently. Liam, you know how it is. When you get an undergrad degree in religious education and then a master's in divinity, you don't really uh, inherently pick up a lot of those kinds of technical skills along the way. (laughs) So. Uh, so I've I, to be sure. I've sort of made a hobby, <laughs> right. I've sort of made a hobby out of uh, backfilling that gaping hole of technical knowledge that comes with a theological education. I do have a question for you though, Liam. Shoot, I've been a loyal listener from episode one. Ever since I heard you were going to have a new co-host, I've been excited to see who it would be. I got to be honest, man, I, I didn't see you going for a fifty-one-year-old cis white straight dude. Uh help me out here. What are you thinking, man? <laughs> when you ask it that way,
1: it makes me wonder yeah. what was I thinking. But, but seriously, beyond the fact that I just love you, man, really respect your gifts, and you, and you have many of those, I was thinking intentionally about a few things. One of those is that obviously I wanted to find someone who I believe people could relate to especially I could relate to, you know, I could be in this weird space Mm. with that's weird and wonderful space. I wanted someone I think our listeners would come to be curious about and want to know. And you're one of the most open and relatable hermits I know. And you um, (laughs) can do some really wicked smart biblical interpretation. And I think people are going to benefit from that. Additionally, though, you've been listening long enough to know that the Bible Bash is all about lifting up some hermits, freaks, geeks, weirdos, outcasts, activists, and even farmers. As a one time, at least, farmer's assistant, I appreciate what you're (laughs) doing down there. And as a person concerned about a lot of the justice issues you're concerned about, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. But at the same time, I value our listeners' appreciation of that balance that Peterson and I had tried to achieve between Jewish and at least quasi-Christian perspectives between gender transcendent experience and cisgender experience and the way that we balanced LGBTQ justice with its true orientation to intersectional issues. LGBTQ justice is intersectional justice. And so I really believe that your perspective and your heart as someone who's deeply concerned about learning to be in relationship with us in a way that creates allyship, is going to be a really valuable part of the podcast. I think you can help folks figure out what we're trying to do in terms of inviting more expansive reading of biblical stories. And not just in terms of like the classic LGBTQ clobber verses, which, you know, we don't even typically. Right. And when we do, we do it with intention. But it seemed to me that a hermit dog loving Bible geek is a perfect choice.
2: (laughs) Well, that's very generous. Thank you. I know it's an honor for me. I know what I get out of this. I'm still going to sit back and watch with the audience to see what you get out of it.
1: So what made you say <laughs>
2: Yeah.
1: So what made you say yes? <laughs>
2: uh, well, that's easy. Part of what's most exciting about all this for me is that you are my favorite person to hear teach from Hebrew. And that's not a small statement. I mean, Liam, when I was in seminary, I'm going to make sure you hear my air quotes because I don't usually use the Christian specific term Old Testament. I prefer Hebrew scripture, but Amen. it was called Old Test. My Old Testament professor <laughs> wrote the textbook that I learned Hebrew from. I've been around some people who can really teach Hebrew well, but you're my favorite. So that's huge for me.
1: You're making me a little misty, man.
2: You'll get over it. Yeah. If I can get over my reluctance in accepting this invitation, then you can get over the mistiness of how much I appreciate you. But this is also personal for me, not in the same way that it is for you, but some of the threads of the tapestry of my family story have made me keenly interested in making conversations like the ones that you and I are going to have here easier for people to have. My hope is that. Somebody else's family will do a better job than mine did of learning how to love everyone in their family in true and genuine ways so that they won't have to weave some kind of tragedy into the tapestry of their family story. And since that's a life and death level hope, saying yes to this was pretty much a no-brainer. So, dude, thanks for inviting me.
1: I had no idea how you were going to answer that question, you know, before we (laughs) had this session, but you have answered it in a way that summarizes what I know about you and your heart and why I think this is a good thing. So thank you for that, you know, for being vulnerable with me and for being vulnerable with us enough to say, you know, this matters. This is life and death stuff here and it matters. Exactly. Folks are probably hoping that we'll, you know, in our meet Don session, that we'll at least take a little tiny look at a text. One I have for us is this, is a little piece of this ongoing story that happens between Joseph and his brothers after he's survived all his horrible circumstances that they conferred upon him by, one, trying to kill him and then tossing him in a hole and, letting him get sold off, right. and, you know, right. so he ends T- up. Typical he,
2: brother stuff. I
1: mean, yeah, I mean, but, yeah. you know, your average sibling rivalry who hasn't tried to kill their sibling, right? But no, seriously, any even halfway respectable Bible geek knows pretty much the general story. The famine comes, and because of his ability to have visions and interpret those the dreams and visions of others, Joseph, in his position, was able to foresee the famine. Pharaoh puts him in charge of figuring out how to, how to prepare for this coming famine. Joseph's family, however, and people throughout the land were not prepared. So the famine comes and they, they realize that Egypt was prepared and that they need to go there to try to get some assistance. Not unlike going to the food bank now. Yeah. Right. Or, and not unlike a lot of what you're trying to do, right? Egypt was there. You know, there's some capitalism issues here. But still, Egypt was there with a plan. So off they go. And then there's this back and forth between Joseph and his brothers because he recognizes them, but they do not recognize him because he has become an Egyptian. And there's some wonderful droshes on that from the text about how Joseph makes these decisions to sort of let go of his past that we can look at it another time. But eventually he, you know, he's very concerned about Benjamin and he's very concerned about their father, you know, because I'm sure he figures their father thinks he's dead. I mean, he's not been with them for a very long time. And so there's all this stuff that he goes through to try to keep bringing the brothers back and to work through his inclination to want to be able to be in relationship at the same time, not want anything to do with them. So he's conflicted. In Genesis 43 and 44, he ends up stashing this goblet in Benjamin's sack, right? So they're getting ready to leave and he stashed this goblet in there and then he tells the guards, you know, this thing is missing. Go, go after these people. And it's a lot of ambiguity about this ruse. But, you know, in my mind, I read it as he's, he keeps going back. He's conflicted, right? And he ends bringing him back to be before him.
2: Yeah. He didn't know a good way to do it, and he did it passive-aggressively and dishonestly. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right?
1: You know, because, yeah. hello, trauma, conflict, yeah. So Right. Right. he gets them back, and the brothers, of course, you know, fall down on the ground in sort of penitence of some kind. You know, you snagged us, and now all this stuff is coming out. But please, please, don't harm Benjamin. You know, please don't keep him here with you. And and basically what Joseph is saying is he stays. You all go back to your father. Right. Yeah. And they have already promised their father. We're bringing him back. We're taking him with us, but no harm will come to him. So they're like, oh, no. <laughs> so it forces them to kind of to kind of say, Look, you caught us, we did this bad thing, but you know we're all responsible please, please change your course here and in verse eighteen, they're all near to Joseph, Joseph's in front of them, they're in front of him, they're interacting together they're as the text would often say, they're face to face right so the, and this mm-hmm. is important. they're already near each other, and in verse eighteen, the text says basically. Then Judah approached him, him being Joseph, and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak. And then, you know, he goes on to advocate for the situation. And what I want us to think about here is the Hebrew text, which is this word that says, which is draw near. And he drew near to Joseph. Well, he's already near Joseph. Yeah. So, so why is the text being redundant? So the rabbis have some things to say about that. And particularly the Or Ha Chaim, otherwise known as Chaim Ben Moshe, into 1600s, early 1700s, did a commentary on this. And what he says is because this was at the text telling us Judah drew near in his heart to Joseph. He's making himself vulnerable. He's reaching out compassionately, hoping to engender compassion from Joseph. Mm-hmm. And it's this beautiful moment in the t- just a little tiny phrase. This is why the Hebrew is so important because it gets lost in the translation to English and, and other languages, quite frankly. Hebrew functions in a certain way that one word, fight like, gosh, is a whole phrase. I think this is a really beautiful way for us to do this introductory session together mm-hmm. because the core of Bible Bash podcast really is about Vayikash. It's about us drawing near to one another in this space as we look at texts. It's about us drawing near to our listeners, adopting a certain kind of transparency and vulnerability, really. To try to engender not only compassion, but a different and more heartfelt, perhaps, way of encountering these texts and these stories that we think we know. There's stuff in there right in front of us that we don't see. I also think that your presence on the Bible Bash podcast is your vaikash.
2: Wow. That is both... Powerfully affirming and powerfully challenging because I don't have a history of doing vulnerability very well. So I may learn quite a bit in this process as well.
1: Well, yeah. And my hope is you'll help me because I don't always do it real well either. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's funny because this friend of mine who I have deep and abiding regard for their opinion said to me once, Liam, you lead with your heart. Was basically asking if I knew that about myself. Mm. I just about fell on the floor weeping, you know, when I realized that I had somehow managed to be achieving that despite all of my efforts not to, right? Like my, my Mm. first instinct is Mm. always Mm -hmm. to not do that. And yet the survivor in me learned very young that when I could do that, at least in some measure and still be safe, still take care of myself, it endeared people to me, which also facilitated my survival, right? So it's both this thing I have to guard against so that I don't overdo it and harm myself. So my first instinct is always not to do it, right? But it's also the thing that makes me accessible to other people in a way that I'm able to do this work that I believe, it may just be me telling myself this, but I believe that I'm
2: sort of called to do. Yeah. It's one thing for you to be vulnerable and let someone draw near to you with a trauma informed survivor kind of instinct. There's also a fear in drawing near when you know you're drawing near to someone that you could hurt without knowing it. Mm -hmm. If you're not thoughtful and careful in how you draw near. Exactly. Exactly part of what I'm looking forward to in this is you and I being able to experiment with that and be careful with one another about that and hopefully figure enough out about that for ourselves that it can be helpful to let others look over our shoulder. That's my hope too.
1: Well said. I'm not sure I could have said it as well as that. That is my hope. And I think the text in this particular text would be a good one for folks to reflect on, right? Because they're getting ready to figure out that Joseph knows already who they are and right, what right, they've right. done, but Judah knows, Yehuda knows, right? We yeah. threw you in a pit. <laughs> exactly. We tried to kill you and yeah. we went back and told yeah. our father you were dead. Like he knows I have already harmed you and yet right. he's willing to step up for others. Cause what he's doing is trying to, he's protecting himself from harming their father. He doesn't want to harm. Jacob by not coming home with Benjamin. Exactly. He's also standing up for Benjamin, right? Because at this moment, it looks like Benjamin's now going to be Joseph's servant. And it's it's an icky
2: situation. It's right? totally icky because he is a product of the same father and family that taught them how to be crappy to him. Yeah. We can see in the text, he doesn't really necessarily know how to draw near to them. Yeah. In really good, open, healthy ways. It, you know, he does it manipulatively and dishonestly. You know, you start where you start. Indeed.
1: And you end up where you end up. And as we as we all know, there's some moments coming later <laughs> in the following <laughs> verses where they're able to be in relationship with one another. So during my bait ding, one of the rabbis asked me. Sometimes, you know, Judaism will disappoint you, too, right? Like, you know, we're all going to disappoint you. Do you have a theology of disappointment? The Joseph story is really, really important to me from the beginning, from the catching epassim and princess dress stuff all the way out to the end, to the end Mm -hmm. of the story. The story's always being written. I lifted up this story in regard to the fact that even in those moments where it seems like God is absent and the events that took place were certainly not God-inspired, the people can still come together and figure out how to be in relationship together. And I believe that's what we're called to do as people, is to even when we can't see where there's some divine hand in things and the last thing it seems like is that God is (laughs) is guiding us onward or present even I'm sure you don't feel God's present while you're in the ditch you know I never have and I'm sure nobody else does right right but that doesn't mean we can not eventually find where God was present with us sustaining us and it doesn't mean that we as human beings get to give up our responsibility to figure out how to be in relationship. Exactly. Yeah. So I believe since we can't spend forever together, we have about 30 minutes to spend with folks. I believe you have yeah. an
2: other text for us today. It's a Wendell Berry. Am I correct? So, yeah. And since we're on the theme of introducing old cis straight white farmers, I picked one of those. So this is a poem by Wendell Berry. And, and it'll be the last one. We'll, we'll, we will do far better in our uh, widely representative selections going forward. But I don't know. Like Wendell's great. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to abandon Wendell. But in, in keeping with our introductory theme, I, I did go for Windleberry. This is called a dance. The stepping stones once in a row along the slope have drifted out of line, pushed by frosts and rains. Walking is no longer thoughtless over them, but alert as dancing, as tense and poised, to step short and long and then longer, right and then left. At the winter's end, I dance the history of its weather. That's the first poem of Wendell Berry's that I fell in love with. It speaks to me in this moment because of that walking can no longer be thoughtless line. Yes. To me, I think that's where we all live, whether we realize it and acknowledge it or not. You know, as we go through time and age and experience things and are weathered by our lives, the, the weather affects the path and it becomes worn and sometimes broken and rocky You'll get hurt or hurt somebody if you walk that path thoughtlessly, and this seemed like a good reminder of that. As you and I get ready to do this little dance together, I thought a, a, a call for thoughtfulness was was what I needed. That's what I hear in this poem. That's why it speaks to me. Amen. And I've never been on a i've never been on a path that wasn't broken and and so it really you know yeah the idea the idea that there might be something as artful as dancing in walking a broken path uh is a really attractive idea
1: yeah, it's a beautiful image I'm already thinking about how I might need to do some um some blogging around that <laughs> uh, because okay. this is one I wasn't you know, I dig Barry, but this is one I had not read. And that image, I think, sums up aspects of my life, though. I'm not a good dancer. Yeah. You know, I got four left feet. Some people got two. I got four. But um, <laughs> but um I'm aware that I have done some <laughs> unconventional kinds of dancing just to stay alive, you know, and that it certainly yes. many of the people who listen to us
2: have. So thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here.
0: Just a quick break from the Bible Bash Action to remind you that this is Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, and we've got all kinds of links to Liam, Don, Bible Bash, and Ministries Beyond Welcome on our site, including the past times we've featured them here, and all of our programs of the past 16 years, both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. There's a heartfelt plea for you to post comments on our site, help us get to know you and what you like, and hopefully you'll consider a donation to us at northernspiritradio.org as well, right after you remember to help out your local community radio station, like the 42-some stations that carry our programs. And right now, back to our wonderful co-hosts, Liam Hooper and Don Durham of Bible Bash.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Bible Bash. I'm Don Durham, a hermit-like mendicant farmer and cantankerous curmudgeon. Dog and I live on a small farm in North Carolina where I grow food to give away. I also host a podcast about what other people are doing to end hunger. This week, it's good to be recording Bible Bash because I'm on my third solid day of rain and the spring field work uh, to prepare for planting wheat has slowed to a grinding halt. Liam, it's good to be here with you.
1: It's good to be with you, Don, and I am indeed Liam Hooper, a trans, queerish, practical Jewish mystic and a theological activist living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, just down the road apiece from Don.
2: Yeah, I think it's only about an hour, but still somehow or another the pandemic has kept us apart. I'm glad we get to visit like this. So am I. It's good to be with you in the ether, Don. How are you on the vaccine status?
1: Because my spouse and I have... Both of us have some pre-existing conditions, and we caretake my mother. We were finally able to get vaccinated and survive that. Both of us had pretty significant reactions, but they weren't unmanageable or unlivable, and I feel like I think I have my brain back on. So, Since there's nothing about the pandemic in Matthew, at least not obviously, maybe we can still find a way to link all these things together, because matthew's altar has that Jesus fellow doing some pretty interesting stuff and i 'm sure you 're surprised the Jew among us is looking at the Christian text, but I do that on occasion because well, I think I 'm a pretty decent intertextual thinker, so what I want to focus us on is this passage in chapter twenty of Matthew, where Jesus gives us an example of what the kingdom of heaven is like by telling us about a landowner and the landowner's workers and how the landowner approaches them. So it starts at the beginning of chapter 20, and I'll just read it briefly or parts of it so that people who may not be familiar with it have a sense of it, and then we'll take a deeper look. Matthew has this Jesus fellow saying, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only for an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the long scorching heat. And he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to the last, the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You know, we usually at the Bible Bash try to focus on stories, I'm sure you've observed that over the But, you know, the Gospels can sometimes be kind of sparse on actual stories, right? Because they're all packed full of these parables, which are themselves stories. A keen reader, though, will notice that there's some stories embedded even in the storytelling. So like in Matthew 19, for example, we have Jesus going around He's left the Galilee, returned to the region of Judea. He's beyond the Jordan. Large crowds follow him. He's curing people. And then he gets to this one section where in verse 13 of chapter 19, then the little children were being brought to him in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them for it is to such as these the kingdom of heaven belongs and he laid his hands upon them and went on his way and yet this person that we refer to as Matthew we don't really know who wrote right. these texts as you know has included it in the string of stories that Jesus is using these encounters to prompt new stories about what is this thing he calls the kingdom of heaven which i suggest is from a jewish perspective and Given that this good boy from Nazareth was a Jew, we might want to think about that for a second, right? Like, so from a Jewish perspective, what he's talking about as the kingdom of heaven, I'm proposing, is what we Jews would refer to as the world to come, which is almost always here, right? Like, in its primary right. context, the world to come is the world we live in that we're trying to build, which is a more just representation of how folks might ought to learn to live together in a universe where the presence of God is assumed? What does it mean to build this righteous
2: world to come here, right now? The present ideal, if we were living up to the best versions of ourselves all at the same time.
1: Yeah, and if we were doing our best understanding of what this thing that's been with us called Torah might be, right? Like, what is the teaching? Which Torah means instruction or teaching. So Jesus is given these little instructions and sometimes much is made of this thing with the children that Jesus is trying to say that to come to God or to be part of the kingdom, you must have this sort of innocence and curiosity about you, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that's what he means at all.
2: We abstract it and moralize it.
1: Yes, we do. I think he's being very literal in a kind of Dickens way.
2: I hear you. Right? He's saying. I
1: like it. And um, you made th- what has this got to do with the laborers? Well, I'm getting there, right? Yeah. If we read this thing about the kingdom is made of these people like these from a
2: Dickens perspective, right? From the concept of child labor, which there was, right? The only story element we've had so far to fill that implied gap is these children. Exactly. Beautiful. What we know about
1: children at the time, well, they were often laborers, right? People were doing the best they could do. And your kids went to work for whatever the family, whatever was, you know, whether you were stonemasons or
2: fisher people or there's some labor involved. Even if it was as gentle as possible, a family internship, apprentice type thing. Still, you got up and went to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah because
2: everybody, everybody depends yeah. on us that's doing right. that. Right. Right. That's what we do.
1: Yeah. Also, all these people are living under Roman occupation. So they're dealing with being an occupied people in an occupied land. And the predominance of people that Jesus was encountering were also other Jews. So these children are people with fewer rights to be gentle about it than adults. And even the adults didn't have very many. So we're talking about people who are disenfranchised among disenfranchised people.
2: Exactly. Even, even if it's possible to conceive of best case scenarios, let's not assume that they were probable or common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if the parents died, now we got these orphan folks that the prophets were always talking about. And I like to think I could be wrong, but I like to imagine that the prophets in some ways meant all children because we're all potential orphans, right? But anyway, that's a whole other Bible bash right there. And Liam's take on what happens if we end up alone. So then we get to 20 and now he's talking about this thing where everybody should be paid the same again, laborers, doing the best they can, standing out in the day day labor lines. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. The vineyard owner is going out and getting labor because the people need to work, and he needs to be able to produce wine to sell so that he can keep it right. Like there's totally. there's a synergy of occupied people taking care of occupied people. Also probably Jewish. Maybe not, but in my mind, The Jewish teacher is giving us a story from a Jewish perspective. Therefore, its characters are probably Jewish, right? right? Living under Roman occupation. This parable, I can count on one hand the number of times I heard a Baptist, and I grew up in a Baptist church, and the number of times on one hand that I heard a pastor refer to this text. And when they do, They gloss it over just to get down here to the end to say, so the the last will be first and the first will be last, meaning we should lift up, you know, (laughs) and take care of the people less fortunate than ourselves. And then they just sort of gloss over it and we go to the next hymn. But there's some really radical teaching here
2: as though the money that were given to the late workers at the end of the day were simply a tip that made it all okay and now we're gonna move on
1: yeah like oh just leave a good tip the next time you're at the restaurant right you know, yeah. yes exactly but that's not what this says <laughs> exactly it says jesus is saying everybody or as old folks say up on the mountain everybody Everybody right. gets the same pay. All y'all. All y'all for the same labor, perhaps done at different levels of ability, same labor, same pay. And I actually went, you know, cause I'm prone to do this. I went and looked up the Greek, mm-hmm. even though I'm not a Greek scholar. I got enough sense to make my way through blue letter Bible or I can hunt those others that way. helped right. me. Right. Yeah. Right. and, It literally says the same wage. Right. The same. So this set me to thinking what if Jesus is telling us that this world we're trying to build that's more just and kind and more perhaps compatible with living together in a universe where the presence of God is assumed because that was the thing back then, right? None of these texts are about proving God exists. They're all about a culture in which the presence of a God or many gods is just, it's just the way things are. How then do we live as a result of that? How do we comport ourselves in such a world? Well, perhaps we take care of the children. Perhaps that's what we
2: do. Fairly basic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we don't stick them in cages, you know, and we don't, if they're unaccompanied minors, send them back across the border to God knows what kind of circumstances. Yeah. You know, we take them in and do the best we can until we figure out how to do better. Perhaps we take care of the children that are living instead of vilifying people who maybe choose not to have any yeah. or maybe choose to do other things with their bodies in regard to procreation, yeah. right? Like maybe we should start thinking of children as actual human beings, everybody's children. Airbody children. Yeah, right, right. Right. And remember that we ourselves are potential orphans. All of us are potentially disenfranchisable, right? <laughs> like we right. and some of us are disenfranchised. And what Jesus is talking about here is this thing in modernity we've come to call guaranteed basic income, which freaks out the imperialist capitalist machine in this country, right? Like you can't do right. that. You can't pay for you hear McConnell, right? You can't pay folk not to work, right? Well, why not? Why? Why not? Why can't you? Right? Like, I see radical underpinnings of of like a real communal understanding about how we're supposed to live with one another, cooperative communal care, care in communities by communities for communities right like this is radical upending of imperialism and colonizer exploitation systems of production and market we can't be glossing over this and my it, so it's my my thought is perhaps this Jesus character at least Matthew's version of this Jesus character doesn't intend for us to gloss over this but to read it for what it is, because the rest of as you and I have talked about on many of occasions, right. the rest of Matthew
2: builds on all of this. Exactly. Right. For for several chapters to come, exa- yes, yes.
1: Yeah. After we, you know, rap about this for a minute, I have a little zinger secret I'd like for oh. us to. You are a a more Christianized Christian than I am. <laughs> if there
2: is such a thing
1: so you know i mean if i'm i mean it would be in,
2: interesting to poll the people in my life and see what kind of agreement <laughs> we could get with that statement really but let's just roll with it go ahead
1: i'm just you know I, I this is just something i'd like for us to talk about i think that there's an artful storytelling going on by the author and that these things all build on one another the children are not accidental in 19. Nothing in chapter 19 is accidental to what
2: comes to follow in 20 and what follows in 21. You know, Liam, my take on any ancient text is by the time you've done centuries of sifting, there's nothing left that's accidental. Amen. What Whatever's there <laughs> is there because it has a powerful place in the context of the text. Yeah, I think you have pointed to sort of the obvious narrative thread that's being offered up, you know, like a uh like a lobbed uh softball to the hearer. It it's yeah. it, it's fundamentally I I agree with you both as a storyteller and as a political activist. Uh I mean as a storyteller, Yes, this is obviously artful construction, and these are the only elements you have to put together. So you kind of have to put them together the way you've put them together. That's just how they're – that's the story. Yeah. As a political activist, I've been paying attention to this conversation about guaranteed basic income since my late 20s and some organizations and work that I was involved in there. I have some hours that never culminated in a degree that make me pretend to think I can be an economist sometimes. It's not legit, (laughs) but it's like just enough that I sort of pretend with myself sometimes that I understand a little bit more than average about economics, but it's questionable. It's not the first time I've thought about that. There are a lot of questions about the practicalities of it, what it looks like, how do you implement it, what are the results of it. Indeed, The the thing is, though... They're not theoretical questions because there are places that have done this. There is a history. I didn't know you were going to mention it, so I didn't pull up any research, but there are places that have done this and what they've observed, if my memory is correct, is that when you provide people a basic platform of resources from which to operate, people tend to do good things. Yes. They tend to do productive things. They tend to do collaborative things. They tend to do all the sorts of things you kind of wish people would do when you tell people they ought to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Exactly. You know, having a platform of resources from which to operate is the bootstraps in the equation that always seem to be missing in that encouragement. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so, it's like the people who tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps forget yeah. you ain't got no boots, right? Like what how am I how am I going to pull myself up if I if I'm not wearing any
2: boots? It's a fundamental problem. Yes, it is. The the way that the way all this comes together, the, the the reason I love what you've done is what I hear Matthew saying. And and this is through the ears that I grew up also hearing this in the context of Baptist pulpits. You know, and the other point that always got made Alongside, and, and this was always sort of a condescending way that the text got used, but it was consistent through all my hearing of it over the years, was careful to make the observation that, you know, those folks that got hired later in the day were probably shiftless, lazy, substandard workers anyway, or they'd have been hired in the morning. Oh yeah, there's always that. Yes, there's always sort of a a, a cut. There. It's like there's some reason why these people that are be, that we're being good to don't deserve it. You know, there's, yeah, there's it's always, a gift. There's always an undermining of the, but that matters because I what I hear Matthew saying is that our investment in people should have more to do with our estimate of their inherent worth than in what we get out of them. Yes, throughout the entire the entire context of Matthew. Exactly. That is yes. And so, when you ask that question in a political economy context, conversation around guaranteed basic income is one way to ask and address the questions around. Well, what would it look like for us to systematize the idea that we're going to invest on? in people on the basis of our estimation of their fundamental worth rather than what we get out of them. Well, okay, this is one way to talk about it. There are others and I don't know, you know, this is one I've been paying attention to for a long time. I think it's got some value worth discussing. I don't propose to have all the answers to all the questions. I don't either, but But, but I have to a fundamental question that I hear you pointing at.
1: Well, yeah, because to me, that's what this, this Jesus character who we see in these texts, to me, echoes the, the very best teachings of this God character we see in the Hebrew text, right? Represented in terms of the people's understanding of what God did for them, represented in the prophets, and certainly represented in the instruction we know as Torah, right? How are we to live? with one another. And fundamental to that is that everybody matters. Everybody has inherent worth because I, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, created them. Right? Like I created them, same as I created you. So so people say to me, they always ask me, well, Liam, why is it that when you read these New Testament texts, you're all the time going back to Jesus being a Jew. And you make such a big deal out of the Jewish texts. Well, in this case, I'm doing it because the
2: author of Matthew told me to do it and told you to as do a, it. As a Christian Scholar of the New Testament, I would I would ask the question in response to that: How can you attempt to read Jesus from the New Testament and not start with and go back too frequently and end up with the observation that he is a Jew in the context of Jews?
1: Yes, but you know you've you've spent some time hanging out with um, pastors, and you yeah. have observed this. Oh yeah, there's this idea that fascinates me. That somehow Jesus was a Christian, right? Like that Jesus I, I bet, was yeah, trying to going. do this, that what it meant for Jesus, for God to be doing a new thing, meant that Jesus was doing a new thing and that Jesus was like this guy going around proclaiming this new religion, which and, is uh, fundamentally ridiculous on yes. one level. It's just, it's, 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 it's insane. But I don't know how many times I had, I heard when I was in seminary, one of my professors say to members of the class, "Jesus was not a Christian," and right. you have to keep iterating that because yeah. there's a vast number of people who believe it.
2: Well, but and it's Matthew, a, it's a, yeah, no, go, go ahead. I was going to say it's a desperate attempt at self-affirmation to assume that Jesus was walking around with all that Jesus's followers have done, with who Jesus was, and what Jesus did fully formed in his head and intending that as the outcome. Yes, it is. That's the arrogant assumption that is sometimes made in assuming that Jesus affirms all that has come after. I've got questions about that.
1: I do too, particularly Matthew's Jesus, right? Yes, yes. So this, as as you pointed out, this gospel was written for the, the group of Jews who were following the Jesus way in Jerusalem. The Jesus in Matthew is deeply rooted in the Torah. This teaching in Matthew 20 about laborers and how we treat them can find roots throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The same as so can this treatment of orphans and widows and that are constantly iterated in one encounter after another throughout Matthew. So to that end, I believe you have for us Another text that is not a biblical text that somehow sort of screams this stuff from the
2: mountaintops. Quite accidentally. Liam, I love it when this happens. Uh, You and I didn't prearrange this, but I do think the other text, and I have to to reach back for a caveat from last week. I said Isaiah was my favorite prophet. I should have qualified that to my favorite ancient prophet because my favorite modern-day prophet is actually Ani DeFranco. For readers who know her, I won't need to explain that. For readers who don't know her, I would say she is a folk artist uh, from Buffalo, New York. And Ani has written about as much in business schools as she is in art publications because of the the power of her self-made story of creating her own publication platform and opening it up to so many others along the way that she's brought along with her. Anyway, so... This text from her song, Coming Up, which I think came out sometime in the early 90s, 92, 93, really sings along nicely with what you brought from Matthew. Our father, who art in a penthouse, sits in his 37th floor suite and swivels to gaze down at the city he made me in. He allows me to stand and solicit graffiti until he needs the land I stand on. And I, in my darkened threshold, am pawing through my pockets, the receipts, the bus schedules, the matchbook phone numbers, the urgent napkin poems, all of which laundering has rendered pulpy and strange. Loose change and a key? Ask me. Go ahead. Ask me if I care. I got the answer here. I wrote it down somewhere. I just gotta find it. I just gotta find it. Somebody and their spray paint got too close. Somebody came on too heavy and now look at me made ugly by the drooling letters I was better off alone ain't that the way it is they don't know the first thing but you don't know that until they take the first swing my fingers are red and swollen from the cold i'm getting bold in my old age so go ahead try the door it doesn't matter anymore i know the weak hearted are strong-willed and we are being kept alive until we're killed He's up there, the ice is clinking in his glass. He sends me little pieces of paper. I don't ask, I just empty my pockets and wait. It's not fate, it's just circumstance. I don't fool myself with romance, I just live. Phone number to phone number, dusting them against my thighs in the warmth of my pockets, which whisper history incessantly, asking me, where were you? I lower my eyes, wishing I could cry more and care less. Yes, it's true. I was trying to love someone again. I was caught caring, bearing weight. But I love this city, this state, this country is too large. And whoever's in charge up there had better take the elevator down and put more than change in our cup or else we are coming
1: Yes, that takes me back a few days. Yeah, thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank you, Don. That's marvelous. It's been great bashing with you today,
2: Don. You as well. Thank you, my friend. And thank you for listening to Bible Bash Podcast. Our show is part of the Rock Candy Network.
1: The Bible Bash theme song is Playbill by the Jelly Rocks. It is available on
2: iTunes, Spotify, or through Rock Candy Recordings. If you have questions, comments, requests for passages you want us to cover, or guests you want us to have on, contact us by email. That email address is welcome at gmail.com. Again, welcome at gmail.com. Bible Bash
1: is a project of Ministries Beyond Welcome. Learn more at ministriesbeyondwelcome.org. If you like what you hear and why wouldn't you, and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us there. Thanks for listening. We look forward to bashing with you again real soon, probably next month. Thank you all for listening. I'll turn it back over to you, Mark. Look forward to spending time with you all again real soon.
0: Yes, we will have you, Liam and Don, back soon. But in the meantime, slow down, go deep. Change yourself and change the world. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.
2: With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our